Well, please turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 3. I will read chapter 3, verses 1 through 26. Our focus is going to be on verses 9 through 20. But I want to read the entire chapter. Well, it's not really the entire chapter. But I want to read through verse 26. Because I want to give us that little taste of good news at the end. We're going to talk about it a little bit. And then we'll explore it more deeply next week. Lord willing. But Romans chapter 3, starting in verse 1. What advantage then has the Jew? Or what is the profit of circumcision? Much in every way, chiefly because to them were committed the oracles of God. For what if some did not believe? Will their unbelief make the faithfulness of God without effect? Certainly not. Indeed, let God be true, but every man a liar. As it is written that you may be justified in your words and may overcome when you are judged. But if our righteousness demonstrates the righteousness, if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Is God unjust who inflicts wrath? I speak as a man. Certainly not. For then how will God judge the world? For if, in, for if the truth of God has increased through my lie to his glory, why am I also still judged as a sinner? And why not say, let us do evil that good may come as we are slanderously reported And as some affirm that we say, their condemnation is just. What then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks that they are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good, no, not one. Their throat is an open tomb. With their tongues they have practiced deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God, apart from the law, is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ, to all and on all who believe, for there is no difference. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness, because in his forbearance, God had passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. We'll stop there. Anybody here watch the TV show Law and Order? Okay, that's one of my favorite shows, Law and Order. Um, I, I think it's one of the most solid uh, crime dramas that was ever uh, put on TV. And that opening line that you get for each uh, episode is a classic, where it says the people are represented by two yet equally uh, two different yet equally important groups: the police who investigate crimes and the district attorneys who prosecute the offenders. These are their stories. And then you get that, dun, dun, you know, that thing at the end, that, that sort of ominous, it's like the gavel pounding, right? 
Well, I think that's what's kind of going on here in Romans 3, 9 through 20. We are sort of in a biblical version of law and order. God is the judge. He is the one who is behind the bar. He is the one who is going to pronounce judgment on us. Paul, as in a sort of a prophetic role as the apostle, is the prosecuting attorney. And of course, all of humanity now is in the dock. We are the ones who are standing before God's bar of justice. We are the ones who are going to be sort of brought to account for everything that we have done. This passage here, Romans 3, 9 through 20, will sum up everything that Paul has been working toward and has been saying ever since Romans 1.18. Remember again where Romans 1.16 and 17 is the theme statement of, of Romans. It's where he says that the gospel, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because the gospel contains the power of God, that internal power that saves both Jew and Greek. And then he says, because in it, the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. And then that righteousness of God then is contrasted with his wrath. So again, he's, you know, the gospel is good news, but then he talks about the bad news. And he talks about the bad news from chapter 118 all the way through here at the end of chapter 3, verse 20. And for the past five weeks, we've been looking at the bad news and it's really bad. It's really, really bad. Ungodly and unrighteous Gentiles are under God's righteous wrath because they suppress the truth about God in their unrighteousness. And ungodly and unrighteous Jews are under God's wrath because they are storing up God's wrath for the day of wrath when his wrath will be revealed. And being, that wrath is being stored up because of their failure to repent, because of their hard and impenitent hearts. God is displayed as an impartial judge. He does not show favoritism. He does not show partiality. He is not more partial to his people because they're his people. He is an impartial judge, and he will judge everything according to our works. Everyone is judged according to what they do in this life. And they're also judged according to the amount of light or revelation they've received. To the Jews, they will be judged under the law because they were given the law. To the Gentiles, they'll be judged by the law that is written on their hearts because God has, in his, when he created man in his image, created them with a conscience. And God will not excuse his people simply because they're his people. Even the Jewish advantages are for naught, as being a Jew isn't a matter of one in the flesh. It is not a matter of one outwardly, but it is a matter of the heart and a work of the Holy Spirit. So it seems as if all of humanity is being painted into a corner. And you would be correct if you thought that. All of mankind is being cornered. We, all of our escape routes are being closed off. It's sort of like, you know, if you're watching an episode of Law and Order, let's say, you know, you've got the, the, the criminals on the run and the cops have set up a, you know, sort of a cordon around the area and they are being sort of trapped in this sort of rhetorical device that Paul is using here. He is, you know, it's a brilliant pincer move. He has cut off all the lines of escape. Simply being a member of the chosen people isn't going to save you. Undergoing religious ritual isn't going to save you. Ignorance of the law is not an excuse, so the Gentiles have no way out. And even denying God's existence, sort of sticking your head in the sand and pretending God doesn't exist, isn't going to save you either. So the entire thrust of Romans 9, 3, sorry, chapter 3, verses 9 through 20, is to, as Paul says, stop every mouth, and, and leave everyone without excuse. 
So as we look at this passage, verses 9 through 20, we're going to see three things. In verse 9, we're going to see, using this sort of law theme, we're going to see the indictment. So the indictment is being presented in chapter in verse 9. And then in verses 10 through 18, you're going to see the charges that are listed on that indictment. And then in verses 19 through 20, you're going to see the final verdict as God pronounces his final verdict on humanity. So looking first at verse 9, we see the indictment. So Paul then here writes, what then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have previously charged both Jews and Greek that they are all under sin. That's the indictment. Now this phrase here, are we better than they? Uh, is probably, could be translated differently. Uh, it could be translated, do we have any advantage? Or are we Jews better off? You know, assuming the word Jew there, the Jews not the word Jew is not in the Greek, but kind of assuming that he is when he says we, Paul being Jewish, might be including other Jews with him. Basically, it's like one last appeal to the judge based on their Jewish advantage. It says, look, we're Jews. Can we get any slack here, God? Can we can you cut us a deal? Can we sort of go before? You know, I mean, they're always cutting deals in, in, in courts, right, to sort of lessen the charges. Can we get a can we get a break here? And Paul's reply is a straightforward no. And we went through last week, we went through great pains to show that Jewish advantage is no good if it doesn't lead to righteous behavior and heartfelt repentance. So Paul's response to this last feeble attempt at trying to sort of wriggle out of the indictment is to state in no uncertain terms, for we have previously charged both Jew and Greek that we are all under sin. Now, just a side comment here. Um, The question Paul addresses here in verse 9 is similar to the question that he opened Romans 3 with. What advantage has the Jew? And again, without sort of going through that, you know, what we went through last week, it might be helpful to look at Paul's question here in verse 9 a little more closely. Again, after reading through chapter 2 all the way through Romans 3, 8, one might think not only do the Jews not have an advantage, but maybe it appears they might have a disadvantage. Paul seems to go to great pains to sort of break down all of their false senses of security and to get them to a point to recognize that they too are all under sin, just like the Gentiles are. Now, that's obviously not the case. The Jews are not at a disadvantage. We looked at the many blessings and advantages that the Jews were given by God. But what we must understand is that these advantages do not exclude them from the requirements of the law. Okay? Just because you have the advantage of having the law does not exclude you from having to fulfill the law. Again, if you remember from last week, we looked at Galatians 3, where Paul is talking to the Judaizers and how they are sort of pushing that Christians must first become Jews before they become Christians. So they have to undergo circumcision and and dietary observances and observing the law. And then Paul tells them, it's like, look, if you're going to circumcise yourself, then you better be willing to keep the entire law. If you're going to if you're going to submit yourself to these rituals, then you better keep the law that is sort of supported by these rituals. But no, these advantages do not do away with their need to repent and atone for their sin. In other words, no amount of human advantages, no amount of advantages that God gives you can wipe away your guilt due to sin. And here the point that Paul, the apostle, is trying to make is that no one can escape 
No one can get out of this. Both Jew and Gentile, as he says, have been previously charged. Now, the Gentiles, we looked at this in detail. The Gentiles were charged in Romans 1, verses 18 through 32, where Paul goes through the whole thing there. God gave them up. God gave them up. God gave them up because they had this descent into deeper and deeper and deeper sin because they rejected God. And once you reject the truth, you have to follow you know, sort of the whole saying, follow your heart. Well, your heart is full of sin. So if you follow your heart, you're going to go down into the spiral of sin and debauchery that you see in chapter 1. And of course, the Jews were in no better shape in Romans chapter 2, where he says, look, you, you're pointing the finger at your, Jew, at your Gentile neighbor, but you don't realize that when you accuse him of sin, you're committing the same sins. And your hard and impenitent heart is storing up wrath for you on the day of wrath, when that wrath is revealed, when Christ returns. The grand jury has convened, and the defendants, both Jews and Gentiles, have been indicted. The indictment reads, they are all under sin. All of humanity is under sin. And if you think of the imagery of this statement, being under sin, it's literally like the idea of like this giant weight of guilt and, and, and judgment is you know, you're trying to support this and you can't support it. You're under the weight of sin. Paul says a similar thing in Galatians 3.22, where he says, but the scripture has confined all under sin. And note here in that verse in Galatians 3.22, it is the scriptures that have confined all under sin. That is the, you know, the, the key witness in the, in the prosecution here is God's very own word. God's very own word has, conf- has confined all under sin. This is not the opinion of Paul. It is not the opinion of some rabbi. It is not the opinion of Joe Christian. It is the opinion of God's word, God's holy, inerrant, and infallible word. And that's what we're going to see in verses 10 through 18. The charges on the indictment all come from God's word. Paul is going to, in verses 10 through 18, he's going to quote, Many passages out of the Psalms and out of Isaiah to show the, the, the depth of human guilt, how we are all guilty and how we are all charged under sin. The indictment, the charges on the indictment all come from Scripture. And the implication is that there is no way out. There is no court of appeals to which we can turn if we don't get a, a favorable ruling because God is the supreme judge. Right. There is no higher court. We are at God's bar of justice, and there is no court of appeals. So let's look at verses 10 through 18, the charges on the indictment here. Again, like I said earlier, what we have here is a string of verses that uh, Old Testament quotations taken from the Psalms and from Isaiah. Um, It's not a complete catalog of human sin that you see here. I mean, that would take... You know, I mean, if it was a complete catalog of all of our sins, I mean, I don't think you could fit it in eight verses. Let's just put it that way. You know, you'd probably need a whole, you know, reams and reams and reams of, of material. But the idea here is a general, you get a general statement on the universality of human sin in verses 10 through 12. And then you get a sampling of some representative sins, sins of the mouth or sins of the tongue in verses 13 and 14. And then sins of action and violence in verses 15 through 17. 
And then in verse 18, he just sort of gives you sort of like the root cause of all sin, where he says there's no fear of God in their eyes. So first looking at the universality of human sin, uh, look again at verses 10 through 12, where Paul says, As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good. No, not one. Now, as you look at those verses, what, what is something that just sort of smacks you right in the face when you see those verses, when you hear those read? None, 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 <laughs> all, <laughs> no one, not one. Right. It is, you know, there, there's, it, it, you've got all these universal negatives. You've got all these universal negatives. None is righteous. No, not one. In case somebody thought, well, I'm righteous. No, so it's not you either. You're not righteous either. Okay. No one understands. No one seeks after God. All have turned aside. No one does good. No, not one. Now, there's not a lot of wiggle room here, right? I mean, none means none. All means all. If you want to have a picture of total depravity, here it is. And we've talked about total depravity before, uh, but it bears repeating. Total depravity doesn't mean that every human being is as wicked as they possibly can be, right? If you think just, you know, if you think about who is, comes to mind when you think of the most wicked person in human history, what are some of the top five candidates? Hitler's one. Anybody else? Any? What's that? Lenin. Okay. Stalin. Okay. All from the 20th century, unfortunately. <laughs> you, you think of this list, these rogues gallery here of Hitler, Lenin, Stalin, all these guys. Um, they were really bad. Okay. If you go by the estimates, Stalin killed, what, about 20 million of his own people. Now, that's pretty wicked, but if he killed 20 million in one, that would be a little more wicked, right? If he killed 30 million, that would be even more. In other words, we're not as wicked. Even the most wicked person you can think of is not as wicked as they can be because they can always add more wickedness to what they do. That's what total depravity, total depravity doesn't mean that we're all as wicked as we can be. But what it does mean is that there is no aspect of human life that is not corrupted by sin. All right, we are sinful in our hearts, we are sinful in our actions, we're sinful in our speech, we're sinful in our thoughts. That's why I like what R.C. Sproul says. He likes to call total depravity, he likes to call it radical corruption, because we're corrupted down to the root of our being. Now, if you look, you know, if you're a casual observer and you look at these statements, they might seem false, right? What do you mean? None righteous? None who seek after God? None who understand? I was doing a little research yesterday, and between Christianity, Islam, and Hinduism, you have 5.5 billion, with a B, billion adherents to some religious system. Now, that's about 68.5% of the world's population. And then if you look at secular, non-religious, atheistic people, uh, they only account for 1.1 billion. Actually, that seems quite little high to me. I thought that, that was amazingly high. 1.1 billion secular, non-religious, atheistic people. But about 14.1% of the world's population. In other words, that means there are over 85% of the world's population still follows some kind of religion, some kind of philosophy, some kind of 
thought, you know, way, way of thinking that is sort of beyond this material world, okay? The point being, clearly, there have to be some, some people who seek after God. There have to be some who understand. There have to be some who have done some kind of good or some kind of righteousness. Paul's statements seem very absolute. But then again, if you consider the evidence that was presented in Romans 118 through verse chapter 3, verse 8, what did you see? You saw Gentiles who refused to acknowledge and glorify God, even though they know the truth about God. We saw Jews who refused to repent of their sin and turn to God, even though they have been given, given great advantages. They've been given the law. They've been given the prophets. They've been given the very oracles of God, it says in chapter 3. In other words, we flat out reject the God who has revealed himself in creation and in scripture. And in place of the true God, we build up idols and images of our own creation and we worship them. So that universality of human sin, uh, is, it, it holds. There are none who seek after the true God, unless, of course, they have been regenerated by the Holy Spirit. So now we're going to look at verses 13 and 14, where we see sins that manifest itself in our speech. 13 and 14 say their throat is an open tomb. With their tongues, they have practiced deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips and whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Now, these two verses are citations. If you want to take these down, they're citations from Psalm 5, 9, Psalm 140, verse 3. In Psalm 10, verse 7. Now, when you think of sins of speech, they don't seem that bad, right? I mean, what's that old little rhyme that we were taught as kids? Sticks and stones may break our bones, but names will never hurt me. It's meant to show you, it's like, it's just words, right? You know, they can call you all kinds of names, but words can't hurt you. Now, do you believe that? No, I mean, words can be very, very, very hurtful. And consider what the prophet, not prophet, sorry, consider what the apostle James says in chapter 3, verse 2 of the book of James, where he says, if anyone does not stumble in word, he is a perfect man, also able to bridle the whole body. If you are able to, if you're able to not sin in your speech, he calls you a perfect man or a complete person. He later goes on to see, he says, see how great a forest, a little fire kindles, speaking of the tongue. So, you know, you think of those Smokey the Bear commercial, you know, commercials, whatever, you know, only you can prevent forest fires. And, and you know, like these giant forest fires can, can, be, can be started by a small little spark, right? If, you, if you're not careful with your campfire or if you're not careful with a match, you could toss the match and all of a sudden, you know, the whole forest goes down. That's the idea. The tongue may be small. But it can start great fires and it can cause great damage. In fact, our Lord Jesus Christ himself said in Matthew 12, 36. But I say to you that for every idle word men may speak, they will give account of it on the day of judgment. Have you spoken any idle words? I'll speak for myself. I'm sure in my entire life I've spoken a boatload of idle words, things I shouldn't have said, things that were, you know, I, I thought were harmless, but 
maybe we're taken the wrong way by somebody else. The idea is that every idle word, even the smallest thing you're gonna, you could say, will come before judgment. Every idle word is subject to judgment. Now notice here the progression that Paul uses here in these verses. First he starts with the throat, then the tongue, then the lips. It's almost sort of like as you know, that progression comes out of your mouth from the throat to the tongue to the lips. Now also the imagery here that Paul uses where he says their throats are an open tomb. Now what do you think of when you imagine an open tomb? Well, dead bodies, right? Rotting flesh, bones, <laughs> filth, corruption. Uh, when Jesus was talking to the Pharisees, he says, you guys are whitewashed tombs full of dead men's bones. In other words, on the outside, you look beautiful. You know, you've been, the tomb has been cleaned. It's, it looks beautiful. It shines and sparkles in the sun. But what happens when you open it up? It's filled with filth. It's filled with corruption. It's filled with death. And that's the idea here. That's what our throats are like. Our throats, because we sin with our speech, it's just full of corruption. It's full of, of, of rot and, and filth. And then he moves on to the tongue. The tongue that was made by God to praise his name and bless those made in his image because of the corruption of our hearts now becomes a tool of deceit. Our tongues are full of deceit. Or with their tongues they have practiced deceit. Now, what's the devil's greatest weapon? What is Satan's greatest weapon? Lies. lies. Yeah. Lies, deceit. So he's got like one bullet in his gun. It's lies and deceit. You know, but it's a very effective bullet, right? When we lie, when we practice deceit, we resemble the devil more than our God who created us. That's what Jesus says to the Pharisees in John 8, 44. He says, you, have your, you, have your, you are of your father... The devil and the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources, for he is a liar and the father of it. And then finally, you've got the poison of asps under our lips. In other words, when we get ready to speak, poison comes out. We're like, we're like spitting cobras. Okay, deadly poison comes out every time we open our mouths. That's what a throat that is an open tomb and a tongue that practices deceit does. It poisons those of whom it speaks. Again, look at James. You don't have to turn there, but you can write the reference down. James chapter 3, verses 8 through 10, where James writes, But no man can tame the tongue. It is an unruly evil, full of deadly poison. With it, we bless our God and Father, and with it, we curse men who have been made in the similitude of God. Out of the same mouth proceed blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Right? So you've got the person who's in church singing praises to God, says the doxology at the end of, of the church service, and then goes out and then starts to libel or slander their brother or sister in Christ. Or you say, you know... Those, those darn Democrats or those darn Republicans or whatever, you know, those, those youth, you know, they're so stupid or whatever, you know, all these things that we say, you know, and, and those are the, that's what James is getting at. That's what Paul is getting at. We have the poison of asps under our lips. 
Then Paul concludes his diagnosis of the sinfulness of our speech by citing Psalm 10, 7, where he says, Our mouths are filled with cursing and bitterness. Now, again, it could be said that not everyone is like this. Certainly people are capable of saying nice things to one another. I mean, I told Fred and Jerry they look very smart and dashing in their suits this morning. And I meant it. I wasn't being facetious when I said that. But, but, remember, total depravity doesn't mean people are as bad as they can be. Right? You know, you could say a nice thing to somebody and then when they're away and out of your hearing, out of, you know, you're out of range of their hearing, you could say something mean to that per- about that person. Or maybe you think it in your heart. That's the point. That's the point. So next, Paul now moves on to from words to actions in uh, verses 15 through 17, where he says, Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways, and the way of peace they have not known. Now, Paul here is borrowing from Isaiah 59, verses 7 and 8, for the next charge in the indictment against all of humanity. We have feet that are swift to shed blood, we have destruction and misery in our paths, and we, ha- and we are ignorant of peace, the way of peace we have not known. Now, think about this for a moment. I think even if you have the most rosy understanding of human history, if you have the most optimistic uh, understanding of human history, you would still recognize that human history is a bloody history. From the very beginning, right? Human history has been marked by war. In fact, that's how we mark our history very often. It's like our history is marked by the conflicts we have been in. You know, in such and such a year, this war happened. What happened in 1648? Well, it was, it was the War of the Roses or it was the, you know, the Bloody Revolution or it was the English Civil War or whatever. You've got all of these conflicts in, in human history, and that's how we mark our time almost. In fact, if you look at our own history, our own history in this country, our country was birthed in a war, in a war of independence, or as the English would say, a bloody revolt, you know, whatever they would say. You know. uh, our country fought a bloody war to end slavery, and our country became the world power in the aftermath of a great and bloody war, World War II. Humanity is a species whose feet are swift to shed blood, right? I mean, consider this fact. What was the first sin recorded after our fall into sin? The murder of Abel by his brother Cain. So right after they'd been kicked out of the garden, it was the murder of Abel by his brother Cain. Cain's feet were swift to shed blood when he felt that his offering was being sort of overlooked or snubbed by God in favor of his brother Abel's. And of course, then for feet that are swift to shed blood, it is not a surprise that destruction and misery are in their ways, right? We're going to look a little more closely at this in, when we look at the book of Revelation. But if you will, please turn to Revelation chapter 6. In Revelation chapter 6, I'm going to read verses 1 through 8. So this is after John has been called up to the heavenly throne room. Um, the great scroll that was given to the lamb that was slain before time was handed off. And now Jesus is opening the scroll. He's pulling off one seal at a time. He says, now when I saw the lamb opened one of the seals and I heard one of the four living creatures saying with a voice like thunder, come and see. And I looked and behold, a white horse. He who sat on it had a bow 
and a crown was given to him, and he went out conquering and to conquer. When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature saying, Come and see. Another horse, fiery red, went out, and it was granted to the one who sat on it to take peace from the earth, and that people should kill one another, and there was given to him a great sword. When he opened the third seal, I heard the the third living creature say, Come and see. So I looked, and behold, a black horse, and he who sat on it had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and the wine. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard a voice, the voice of the fourth living creature saying, Come and see. So I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and the name of him who sat on it was Death, and Hades followed with him. And power was given to them over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword, with hunger, with death, and by the beasts of the earth. We'll turn back to Romans 3. So you've got these, the seals are opened and the so-called four horsemen of the apocalypse are released. And you've got the rider of the first horse is symbolic of political and military destabilization as he is given the power to conquer. Then right after him comes the, the red horse who's war and he's given the power of the sword to kill uh, a tenth of the earth. And then the rider and the black horse is famine. And what happens, you know, you get military conquest and you get war, then you get famine and then you get, you know, the fourth one is the pale horse whose death and disease and plague. It's, it's what happens when you've got, when your feet are swift to shed blood, then all sorts of destruction and misery follow in its wake. That's the idea here. That's what the, the writer you know, of Revelation is also saying. And of course, the obvious corollary to all of this is that the way of peace they have not known. Consider for a moment just how elusive a commodity peace truly is. Has the world ever known a moment of true peace in our lifetimes? Probably not, right? I mean, even when we're not in an actual war, there was the Cold War, where we're basically staring down the barrels of each other's guns, right? Between us and the Soviet Union, now between us and probably China. In fact, the U.S. still has military forces and bases across the globe. Now, I'm not saying, this is not a comment on whether that is something we should do or shouldn't do. I'm just stating a fact. We have military bases all across the globe. And it's just to demonstrate that peace is a chimera. It is a unicorn. It's something, you know, it's a mythical beast. You can't find it. We're never going to find true lasting peace through our own human efforts. Couple that with the fact that peace is much more is much more than just the cessation of hostilities. I mean, you can have a treaty where you're no longer hostile to one another. It doesn't mean you have peace. And to demonstrate that, men, you have wives, right? Okay, now, if you're not currently arguing with your wife, does that necessarily mean you have peace in the home? If your wife says fine or nothing's wrong, does that mean that everything is fine or not, there's nothing wrong? I don't know. Maybe, maybe, maybe not. That's the, that's the point. True lasting peace is something that will continue to elude mankind until Christ. The Prince of Peace returns to bring justice and final judgment on all of God's enemies. And then briefly, the final charge in the indictment is the summary charge that underlies all of the other charges in the indictment. Romans 3.18, there is no fear of God before their eyes. This is taken from Psalm 36.1. And really, this is sort of like the root cause of all sin. 
you think of the book of Proverbs, the foundational principle in the book of Proverbs is that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom or the beginning of knowledge. And this idea of the fear of the Lord means several things. It means awe. It means reverence. It means respect. And it means actual fear. I mean, actual fear of the Lord. Again, consider what the Israelites did at the foot of Sinai. When God descended, you had that sort of, you know, technicolor light show going on at the top of Sinai. And the people at the, gathered at the bottom of the hill were afraid. And they would not approach the mountain because they knew God was there. They were rightfully afraid. They had a healthy respect for the holiness and the awesomeness of God. Now, when you look at our world in general, do you see a fear of the Lord? I would say no, not in general. Do you see a healthy respect for the holiness of God? No, in fact, I think you see quite the opposite. Sin is tolerated. God's name is not hallowed. Disdain for God and the things of God are openly encouraged by many. In fact, people in general have a small view of God and a small view of their sin. That is, if they have a view of God at all, to be quite frank. And as a result, they have no fear of God before their eyes. This is the view of the scoffer, the one who mocks God and puts him to the test. You see many atheists do this. You know, they're speaking before crowds of people. They say, if there's really a God, he would strike me dead as I drop this pen before the pen hits the ground. And then the pen will hit the ground and says, see, there is no God. He didn't strike me dead. And it's like, what is that proving? What is that proving? It's just proving that you are a mocker and a scoffer of God. That's all it's proving. If you think you're escaping God's judgment because he didn't, hit you, he didn't get you before that pen hit the ground, you've you're got another thing coming when Christ comes at the end of the age, right? But it should be clear to see that this lack of fear of God before their eyes is what leads to everything else that is said here in verses 10 through 18, which now leads us to the verdict, chapter uh, verses 19 and 20. The indictment has been filed, the charges have been read, and all that's left And our little courtroom drama is the verdict. As we read here in verses 19 and 20, now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in the sight for by the law is the knowledge of sin. Note what Paul says here. Whatever the law says, it says to those under the law. Paul is speaking here of all mankind. We are all under the law, whether it's the Jews who are under the law that was given to them or whether it's Gentiles that are under the law that is written on their hearts. No one is excused. No one escapes the judgment of God. And the result is that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. Once the charges have been read the indict- under the indictment, the only appropriate response is silence. God has spoken. What are you going to say back to God? Kind of what happens at the end of Job. It's one of, these, one of my favorite scenes at the end of Job. So you've got the first 38 chapters. Job is in his sort of kind of dialogue with his three friends. And Job's like, no, I'm righteous, I'm righteous. And his friend says, no, no, you must have done something wrong or else you wouldn't be sitting here in you know, sackcloth and ashes with sores all over your body. And Job continues to protest his righteousness. And then finally, in chapter 38, God appears in the scene. And in chapter 38, verses 2 and 3, God says, who is this who darkens counsel by words without knowledge? 
Now prepare yourself like a man. I will question you. You will answer me. And then he goes on for two more chapters. He says, were you there when I did this? Were you there, were there when I did that? Did you, you know, did you grow these things? Did you do all these things that I did? And then in chapter 40, verses 4 and 5, Job speaks. He says, what does he say? He doesn't protest his righteousness anymore. He says, no, I am vile. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand over my mouth. Once I have spoken, but I will not answer. Yes, twice I will proceed no further. He saw the holiness and awesomeness of God, and he was silent. He says, I'm going to stop speaking now because I'm just heaping on more on top of me. Job's mouth was stopped when he was confronted by God. And it will be the same for all of humanity. God's charges have been read, and we are unable to refute them. And the final verdict is in verse 20. We cannot be justified in the sight of God through works of the law. And we spoke about this several weeks ago when we looked at Romans 1, verses 16 and 17. We talked a lot about works of the law. And the point is that after the fall, the law cannot save. After the fall, the law cannot save. When man was originally under the covenant works, the blessedness of eternal life and glorified bodies was held forth to Adam and Eve if they were to obey, if they were to have personal, perfect, and perpetual obedience to the law. But they failed. And now post-fall, that option has been removed from us. Our problem, though, is that we are still hardwired for law, right? We're still hardwired to do things, to be obedient. We try to ascend the mountain of God. And all of our attempts to ascend the mountain of God revolve around our works, revolve around merit, revolve around the things that we do. But due to our original sin and the actual sins we commit, there is no way we could ever be justified by the law. In fact, the only thing the law of God is good for in a post-fall world is to show us what he says here is the knowledge of sin. The reformers have developed what is commonly called the three uses of the law. You have the three uses. I'm going to put them out of order because I want to emphasize the last one. But really, the first the one use of the law is that it serves as a rule to guide believers in how they, they can live their lives in thankful obedience to everything that God has done. The law can also serve as a guide for a civil society. But the primary or the first use of the law is as a mirror. The law is held up as a mirror to show us our sinfulness and to show us our need for a savior. And that's what Paul is getting at here. The law only condemns. The law only points out our sin. It can only show us just how far we fall short of God's glory and righteousness and his just standards. That's the bad news. All men are guilty before God's bar of justice. The mouths of all men have been stopped because the law has shown us our sin. The verdict is in and we are guilty of all charges. Now, the last few weeks, I've given you hints and glimpses of the good news. And the good news is something, you know, I'm going to do so again this morning. And next week we'll, we'll have, you know, we'll make, a, next week we'll see another major shift in Paul's letter to the Romans as he now starts on justification. And, but I want to leave you with a little bit of taste of the, of the goodness of the Lord here in verses 21 through 26. I'll read them again. Where Paul writes, But now the righteousness of God, apart from the law, is revealed, 
being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. For there is no difference. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God has set forth as propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance, God had passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. This is a true mountain peak in the Bible. I mean, all you know, we believe the entire Bible is inspired by God and it's all good and profitable for our, for our uh, instruction, for our blessedness. But sometimes you get some passages in the Bible that are just so magnificent. They're just so amazingly good news that you want to highlight these. And I would suggest if you like to underline your Bible, just like circle this entire, those six verses there, one through six, or 21 through 26, and just highlight them because they're so amazingly gospel-centered words. Anytime, in fact, anytime you see a but now in the Bible, that's usually a transition into good news. And those are passages to be highlighted. Let's pray and get ready for worship.